0: everybody. Good morning. morning. I want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church, if you care to to participate in that, just a chance to hear scriptures in a more age-appropriate setting. And as they go, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, your word says in Isaiah chapter 53, he grew up before him like a plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, Lord, it's absolutely true that we should sing. It's appropriate that we should sing about our beautiful king. Because, Lord, it's what you have done, what you've accomplished, how your grace has extended to us that we find beautiful. Not your form, not those transient things that uh, we usually associate with beauty, but, Lord, your magnificent love for us. And so, uh, Lord, thank you for an opportunity to s- join together to sing about our beautiful King. And Lord, I pray for our time now in your word. Uh, Lord, we are going to hear some uh, challenging things, some, uh, some opposition to us that is alarming sometimes to think about. So, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds? Would you comfort us with the promises of the Lord and help us to see what it is that we need to learn from the scripture today? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, like Jim said, we're starting chapter 22. We're heading into the Holy Week. The the execution of Jesus is what's coming. And I can remember years ago, I was reading the Gospel of John and just loving it. And I got to this Passover. And I remember I just had this visceral reaction like, no, I didn't want it to end. Um, But this time, I'm I'm not having that kind of reaction. I just feel like this this event is coming towards us and we can kind of see it. What we've done as we've come to chapter 22 is we've kind of taken a little bit of a turn in the narrative style that Luke is using. Uh, He's gone from a lot of teaching, a lot of Jesus speaking and teaching us, and from this point it kind of turns into more uh, history, more telling the story, uh, less about um, the the teaching and, and the didactic part and more about narrative. And so our approach is going to be a little different. We're going to have to just look and observe the narrative, what's happening, and see what we can get out of it. And that's, that's what we're going to see this morning, is you saw how short it was, uh, just a brief little statement, and there's nobody talking in this. So we're going to have to figure out what's going on. Uh, what we're going to see here, though, at in, in the beginning of chapter 22, is our enemies. The, the foes of Christ are just kind of set on the stage. Here they are, they're introduced. And so that's what the, the message is going to be about, is our, our enemies, the foes of Christ. Um, There was a group of us went last night to see the movie Dunkirk. Um, It was about the 1940, um, during World War II, the British and French forces were chased to the sea. And at Dunkirk, they were stranded. There was nobody to get them. And the way that this movie went, it was not like a typical war movie where people seemed to run from explosion to explosion. This movie was a much slower, steady pace, and what you felt was not explosions at every turn, but just a constant, relentless threat. You just knew it was there. You'd see these people lined up on the beach, and every once in a while, uh, uh, Falkworth would appear in the sky, or a bomber, and you just knew what was coming. And it was just, the whole thing had me on edge all the way through that movie. So that at the end of the movie, when the troops, and this is kind of a spoiler alert, but this is history, so it's not really spoiler alert, it happened. When the troops get back to England, and they're on the train, and they pull into the siding, and it's beautiful English countryside out the window, I still had this sense like, oh my gosh, something's going to happen. And I thought, that must be what PTSD is like, is you constantly live under this threat. So even when you're safe, you're, you're on guard, you're watching. So what was interesting about Dunkirk was just this slow, steady, relentless threat constantly on top of them, It reminded me of the book uh, The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane, which is about the Civil War, and it's not tons of explosions and gunfire and where the troops were and who was leading what. It's just from a soldier's perspective, and you've constantly, as he's marching through the wood, got this threat hanging over him. You know what's coming. And, and I think that's probably what, more, what war is more like than, than the uh, excitement of the explosions and, and uh, the pyrotechnics and stuff is I think there's a lot of not much happens but the threat is over you. That is kind of what we're gonna face. That's kind of what we're facing as Christians is we have an enemy who is constantly present and constantly threatening, but not always really exciting and real you know, flashy all the time, very subtle. So when in the scriptures here, in the story from Luke, when our enemy pops his head up, we need to pay attention. The last time we saw Satan was in chapter four when he was tempting Jesus, and now he's back on the scene. So that that tells us our enemy has appeared, now something's going on, so let's pay attention. So let's take a look at this. The first part is pretty straightforward. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. Um, We'll look at the Passover next week. That's the institution of the Lord's Supper. We'll dig more into the Passover next week and kind of understand it there. For now, let's just focus on this. There's a Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days of yeast-free living, if you will. You didn't have any any leaven in the house. And then the the day after that was the day of Passover. Um, Those were seen as one, as you can see how Luke described it. He says the Feast of Unleavened Bread is called the Passover. They're so connected, they see them as one. When Passover happened, they had to bring a lamb to sacrifice. So at this time of year, Jerusalem was packed. It was just full of people. All the folks who lived in what was called the diaspora the the, uh, the scattered people living throughout the grec and Roman Empire uh, would return to Jerusalem. so the city was full at this time of year, I mean just full so that's that 's kind of the, the setting that we 're in is imagine Jerusalem now imagine it twice as full I mean just really bustling with people, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him that 's Jesus to death, for they feared the people so Righteousness has come to them, has stood before them, has told them how they should live, and their response is, we've got to kill him. It's it's amazing, but this is their approach. But they're afraid of the people. If they go and arrest him in front of everybody while he's preaching and teaching, there's a genuine danger. The crowds will turn against them. And so they're looking for subtle ways to do this. How can we trick him? How How can we do this in some other way? So that's the first set of enemies. Luke refers to the scribes and the Pharisees, other gospels refer to uh, the, the, sad, or the, uh, the scribes and the chief priests, other uh, scriptures refer to the Pharisees being involved as well. It's just a matter of focus, where we're going to put our focus. But these religious leaders are now opposed to Jesus, and they're looking to take him down. They're looking for an opportunity to get him. So that's our first set of enemies. Um, like I said, we'll deal with the Passover and that kind of thing in, in a bit. Um, one thing I do want to say is, as we enter, especially as we enter into the Holy Week in, in Luke's Gospel, it is very possible to synthesize, to harmonize all of these different accounts of what happened during this week. I'm not going to do that. There's plenty of books on it. It's great. I'm going to focus simply on, I'm going to try to keep my nose in Luke and see what Luke is trying to tell us about this. So if you're interested, how did this line up? When did Satan enter? Judas, and what day did that happen? And there's books on that, you can, you can get some help with that, but I'm gonna just go with how Luke tells the story, if that's okay. So that's our first set of enemies, is the spiritual leadership of, of the city, but they're afraid of the crowds, they're afraid that they'll start a riot if they do what they wanna do. And so now the next part, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who is one of the 12. Our enemy has popped his head up. He's come out of his foxhole, and he's making a move. So we need to pay attention to what's going on. What is he doing here? What's, what's, what's he up to? And we've heard Judas before. And all we were told about Judas before was he would become a traitor. That was it. We didn't, we didn't know much about him. Luke doesn't spend a whole bunch of time on him. So Satan enters into Judas. And Judas goes off. And he confers with the chief priests and the officers how he may betray Jesus. How can he turn him over? And those guys are really happy because this is the subterfuge. This is the hidden cover that they're looking for is this Judas guy knows where Jesus is going to be. He's going to come and lead us to him in private, away from the crowds, and we can take care of this. This is going to work out great for us. So they're really happy. So that's the setting of this thing. The one thing I want to really focus on for a minute, though, is Satan entered into Judas. When I read that, that made me ask a couple of questions. First of all, was Judas just some innocent bystander who got tackled by the, de- the devil and dragged into this? And second of all, why on earth would Satan do this? What was he thinking? So let's, let's kind of stop and we need to do some inferring from this and, and observing. Like I said, this is narrative, so it, we don't get a lot of teaching from it. We can use this as kind of a springboard into some other things. So first of all, Satan entered into Judas. Um, Was Judas just the innocent victim here? He was just, the guy standing on the street, Satan jumped on him and and made him do it. Um, The the great 1970s theologian Geraldine who said, the devil made me do it, right? Um, Is that what happened to poor Judas? He's just innocent in all of this. Well, first of all, what we need to look at is, is Satan iterated to Judas does not equal Judas was possessed by Satan. It sounds like it, but it doesn't equal that, and here's why I would say that. First of all, the other Gospels refer to this as Satan put it into Judas's heart. That's the first thing: is Satan put it into Judas's heart? And Luke will use those phrase, that kind of terminology later as well, but not about Judas. The second thing is, when somebody is demon possessed, it doesn't appear that they are held responsible for what they did during the possession. And and the where I get that from is the uh, Gennesaret demoniac, remember when Jesus was up in the northern area of Israel and he went to the east side of the Sea of Galilee into the region of Gennesaret, where it was largely Gentile, and there was a man there who lived out amongst the tombs, who cut himself with rocks and sharp things, who couldn't be bound with chains because he'd break the chains off his arms, and he attacked anybody who got near him. This was a man who was possessed not just by a demon, but by a legion of demons, And so when Jesus comes, he runs up to Jesus, and the demons realize they're in trouble. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to throw us in the pit? They know they're in trouble. And when Jesus casts out these demons, this man now is sitting clothed and in his right mind. He's sitting at Jesus' feet, and he's talking with them. And when the people come out to find out what's going on, they're blown away by this. How could this happen? This is amazing. When Jesus gets they ask Jesus to leave because it's just too weird <laughs> this doesn't happen you don't, we don't we don't see these kind of things happen you've got to leave us so they asked Jesus to leave and as he's going the the Gennesaret demoniac the man who's now been delivered says let me go with you and Jesus response to him is not no dude you need to go fix it with those people you beat up you hurt a lot of people by doing that he doesn't say no you need to go back to your family and apologize for abandoning for so many years what he tells the man is no you need to stay here and tell people what God has done for you he leaves him there as a witness. He doesn't tell him, you are responsible for everything that happened during that possession. The demons, however, are held responsible. And that's why they plead with Jesus, please don't put us in the pit. They know what's coming. There's a pit waiting for them. So I don't think Judas is demon-possessed because we see him held responsible for what he's doing. For what he will do, he will be held responsible. So first of all, I don't think he was demon-possessed. So then, what does it mean that, Judas, or that Satan entered into him? Um, what it means is Satan came into his life and had an influence on him. So did he turn poor Judas from being just a great, honest follower of Jesus, a good guy, into this horrible person who would sell him? That's not how Satan works. He, he, he doesn't do that. Short of possession, that's not how he operates. What we have to do is back up and take a look at who is this Judas guy? What do we know about him from other things? Luke doesn't tell us a whole bunch about him except he would become a traitor. But what we hear from John, who spends a little bit more time on this, because by the time John wrote, there were probably a lot of questions about, what about Judas? This doesn't make sense. Um, The the way he describes Judas is, in John chapter 12, Jesus has had the woman come and put oil on his feet, very expensive jar of oil. She broke it open and poured it all over his feet. And Judas' response is, What a waste of money. We could have sold that and then we would have had money. We could have given it to the poor. And and he gets upset with Jesus about this, acts indignant about it. What John then kind of puts in for us is, oh by the way, Judas was not concerned about the poor. He didn't care about them at all. What it was was he was a thief and he held the money bag. And he would take out of that whatever he needed. So he's upset about them pouring oil on Jesus not because he was so concerned about the poor. It was, hey, I want my cut of this, man. So what we see with Judas is, first of all, he's already got this greedy spirit. He's already got this greedy attitude. He's a thief. He wants money. So when this opportunity comes up, he's gonna betray Jesus for money? Boy, that's right in line with who he is, isn't it? So Judas was not dragged kicking and screaming into this. He was not possessed and overpowered by Satan. So then, what was satan's role in this then what did he do to uh to judas to make him betray him why was he even involved well this kind of opens the question for us what is satan's role in our sin he's got a role in human sin he always has so think about genesis chapter 3 this snake comes and appears and, and talks to eve snakes don't talk but a snake appears and talks to Eve. What Revelation says twice in the book of Revelation is it calls Satan that ancient serpent, pointing back to that's Satan doing this. So Satan had a a key instrumental role in the first sin. He goes to Eve and he starts twisting God's word and twisting God's word until the point where she gets really confused. First Timothy two says she was very confused. She was really deceived. She had been led down a stray, uh, stray path. And so she, in the state of confusion, reaches out, grabs a piece of fruit, and takes a bite. This, this is supposed to be good, right? I, th- I think this is supposed to be good. And then she turns to her husband, who's standing there, and, and 1 Timothy 2 says, he was not deceived. So Adam is standing there, clear-eyed, clear-headed, and he says, well, she didn't drop dead, I'll take a bite. And he eats the fruit. So now what have we got? We've got Satan instigating sin and two people participating in sin. And how does God respond to this? Well, the first thing he does is he comes to Adam and he says, what did you do? And Adam goes, oh, the woman you made, she did it. Implicating God made a boo-boo, and it's all the lady's fault. So throw your wife under the bus, guys. That's really heroic. Then he turns to the woman and he said, what did you do? And she said, the snake deceived me. And so then, he didn't even ask the snake. He turns to the snake and he says, on your belly you will crawl. And your offspring is gonna be at war with her offspring. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. So right there, he holds Satan responsible for what's happening. He doesn't remove legs from snakes. He's cursing Satan at that point. Because what comes is a war between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. That's, That's how you get that picture. Satan is judged. But in the midst of it is promise. He looks, to, he looks at the snake and he says, your offspring will be at war with her offspring. She's going to have offspring. And there's going to be a war between you two. And he's going to crush your head. He's going he's to win. There's, there's hope, even in the middle of the curse. Satan's held responsible and is announced right then, you're, you're done. Your days are numbered. Then God looks to Eve and does he go, well, sweetheart, you were confused, so uh, you know, we'll just give you a pass on this. No, he looks to her and he says, childbearing is going to be really hard for you now. I'm going to increase your pain in childbirth. And again, in the midst of it is a curse. She's held responsible, even though she was confused. She's held responsible. And in the midst of it is promise again. But this isn't it. You're going to have children. There will be offspring. Humanity is going to continue after this. So even in the middle of that is promise. And then he looks to Adam and he says, all right, dude, you had a job here. You had one job. I gave you the law of the garden. I told you you can't eat from the tree. You watched your wife get it wrong. You watched her stumble. You watched her get confused. And when she didn't drop dead when she ate it, you participated. You have violated the one rule I gave you. And then he says, by the sweat of your brow will you bring forth food. You're going to till the ground and it's going to bring up thorns. It's going to be hard. So Adam is the what? Pardon me, Adam is the one through the rest of the scriptures that we see is he's the guy that we fell in. We didn't fall in Eve, even though she ate first. We fell in Adam. So this is where human sin comes from. Through the sin of one man, sin entered the world. And by sin, death. So Adam gets judged for what he's done. But again, you're gonna have food. It's gonna be hard, but you're gonna work the ground and it's gonna produce. You're not done, you guys. There, there's, there's promise in the midst of all of this. So Satan's role in this then was not to force Eve. He didn't wrap his tail around her hand and drag it to the tree. He spoke to her, he deceived her, he coaxed her. He led them in a direction they already wanted to go. So that, that's the, the first place that we see Satan in, involved in our sin. Um, here's another example. Uh, Acts chapter five. The church is, is established. It's now beginning to grow, and everybody is holding everything in common. The, all the people are sharing together. So people are are selling parts of their promised land, the, her, the the land that they have in Israel. They're selling it off, and they're bringing the produce to the or the uh, the proceeds to the church, and they're saying, let's share this all together. So if there's poor, let's take care of them. We're going to hold all of this in common. This is the spirit of the church at that time is what they're doing. And there's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they have some property, and they sell it. And so they come to the church, and they say, we're giving you all our money, and then he kept part of it back. And so Peter calls him in, and in, in, uh, as he's talking with them, in, in verse 3, Peter says to Ananias, the, the husband, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Their greed, all Satan did was speak into their heart, hey, you can hang on to some of that. And their response was, yeah, we can hang on to some of that. And God judged them. He struck them dead for lying to the Holy Spirit, for trying to deceive people into thinking they were more holy than they were. So Satan had a role in that. He, he tried to deceive them. He, he whispered in the ear, all you got to do is hold a little bit back. It'll be okay. We don't have to tell anybody. And they, they agreed. And they're responsible for it. So what's going on here is, I think the best example that I have ever heard was in this room over 20 years ago. Bob Burris was a pastor. And he said, what Satan does with our sin is kind of like if I go up to this piano and I push down the sustain pedal and I sing into the top of it a note, ah, the piano will sing that note right back to me. It's because the, the strings are loose. They're free to vibrate. And that sound comes in, and, and it begins moving those, those strings, and those strings sing it right back to me. If I hit a note that that piano doesn't have, theoretically, let's say one of the strings was missing or something, it wouldn't sing it back to me. It has to be there to be able to do that. So that, that's how Satan works in our lives when he's instigating sin to us, is he doesn't come and force it on top of us. All he does is sing that note in, and we sing it right back. I think that's the best illustration, it, obviously it stuck with me, it's been over 20 years and I still remember it. Um, it's just a great way to explain how, what Satan's role in our sin is. So here's what's going on, is first of all, Judas had a bent towards being greedy. He, he liked money. He wasn't really on board with the whole Jesus thing, but it was working for him for right now, so you know, we'll go with this. So when Satan comes to him and, and enters into him, it's not like he took him over and forced him, all he did was enter in and say, hey, you want some cash? We can make money off this. And Judas's response is, yeah, we can make money off this. And he, he sings that note right back to Satan. It just rings right out of him. So this is exactly what is going on. Now, does that, that's a pretty metaphor, but does it work scripturally? Can we, can we defend that from the Bible? Uh, this was helpful to me. John Piper wrote a book called Spectacular Sins. And he's not saying sins are great what he did is he looked through history and he said, here are some of the major sins and how they affected redemptive history and how God used them to accomplish his purposes. And one of them is this, Judas's betrayal. So I was really helped by this. He's he's talking about, is is it unnatural for people to do this, to be under Satan's sway, have Satan singing into their lives, is that unnatural? And he quoted Ephesians in a way I hadn't thought of before. So if you wanna open your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians 2. Uh, Ephesians 2, the first couple of verses, listen to what he says here. He's talking to these believers in in Ephesus, and he says, you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's where we get this picture of singing into the piano and it's singing back. He says, you believers, before you you were born again, before you became born again believers in Jesus Christ, you were dead. You were dead to the glory of God, you were dead to the faithfulness of God, you were dead to the promises of God, and what killed you was your trespasses and your sins. Yours, not Satan's, your sins did this the sins that you own, that are part of who you are. This is what possessed you. This is what animated you. Following the course of the world, you went along with, this is just how the world works. This is just the normal way things are in this world. You followed along that course. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's most likely Satan. It's kind of an odd term, doesn't appear too much, but that's most likely Satan, the prince of the power of the air. You were following along in, the, the trajectory, the way Satan has, has already acted in this world, you are right, right in line with him, going right down that same path. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's it's saying the same thing again. The spirit that is in wor- at work in the sons of disobedience. So those who don't know Christ, who are not born again, who are living sin as a normal pattern of life, they are under the power of the spirit of the age. They're under Satan's sway. It's not unnatural for them to do what they do, and it's not something Satan has to to, uh, push, but he can just drop a, a hint once in a while. What about this? What about that? And they will naturally go in that direction. He's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of your flesh. The passions of your flesh. The flesh there is synonymous for the fallen human nature. You did what you did because it was part of who you are as a fallen, broken, sinful human being. This was not Satan pushing you into it. This is you doing what was in accordance with your fallen human nature. And the passions of your flesh carrying out the desires of the mind and body and were by nature children of wrath. By your very nature, by who you are, by nature you are children of wrath is what he's saying. So that's, I think, the best defense for this idea that Satan doesn't have to force you into anything, but he does have an influence. He does have some sort of work in our sin, but not such that we're excused from it. When we stand at the throne of, of judgment, we're not going to be able to go, well, Satan made me do it. Again, sorry, Geraldine, this doesn't work. Satan did not make you do it. Satan suggested, and you went, yeah, I'll do that. That'll be good. So Piper asked the question. He says, uh, did Satan then take people captive and just force them into this? And his response was, Satan does not take innocent people captive. There are no innocent people. That's what we just heard from Ephesians. Satan has power where sinful passions hold sway. Judas was a lover of money, and he covered it with a phony external relationship with Jesus, and then he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. So this is how our enemy works. He doesn't have to overpower us. He doesn't have to drag you kicking and screaming. But he's there to make these subtle influences when he can. So we all have, even as redeemed, born-again believers, we still have a sinful nature. We still tend towards sin. We're bent towards obedience to God, but, but the flesh is still there. It's still interfering. And so we're familiar with the sins that we war with. We just every day I'm not going to be proud. I'm not going to be boastful. I'm not going to uh, be so negative to my family. Whatever your sin is, whatever that thing you wrestle on a regular basis until we're delivered from it, it's just there. And you're familiar with that. You know that feeling. Have you ever had once in a while something just swell up out of nowhere? Suddenly it's like what why was I thinking that? Where did that come from? This is horrible be looking for the smell of sulfur around that. That may be Satan coming up and going, hey, let's try this. And and it may be actually a satanic influence. And you need to be prepared, because those things will come. Or that sin that you fight with on a regular basis suddenly flares up really strong one day. It's like, what on earth is going on? That could be a satanic influence coming to try to sneak in the back door and trying to get at you. So good heavens, what do we do with this? We have to be aware of our enemy's strategy, right? We have to know what's going on. This is that, that moment on the beach at Dunkirk where we're just waiting for the buzz of the Falkworth 109 because we know it's coming. And if you're ready, then you, you have a plan. You're not just standing on the open beach. You know where to run. You know what to do. So what on earth are we supposed to do if this is what our enemy is, if this is what he's capable of, how do we fight this? We're not stranded. We have tools. The best answer that I have found comes from the book of James, chapter 4. James has something wonderful to say to us. Starting in verse 5, he's talking about God, and he says, but he gives more grace. God gives more. This is what we need is we need grace in the middle of this. As those sulfuric flaming words are coming into our ears, as that, that twinge in our heart starts beginning to sing, we need more grace. And grace is like that sustain pedal being released. The dampers come down on the string, and you sing the note in, and it just gets really weak. You don't hear it resonating quite so well. We need grace to take that, that foot off that pedal so the sustain is not open. So Luke or James prompts us, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in the midst of this, this war against Satan, this war against your own sin, what do you do? You need grace. You need God's grace in your life. That's the only way you're going to fight it. And God just promised us how you can get it. How do you get more grace? He gives grace to the humble. So be humble. All right, let's pray. (laughs) It's not that easy, is it? (laughs) How do I be humble? Maybe that's my problem is I'm proud. And humility is not a natural function for me. Well, remember our definition for humility. It's seeing ourselves rightly before God. It's, it's seeing ourselves as who God sees us to be. God doesn't flinch. He doesn't, he doesn't downplay it. He looks at you and he goes, you are a sinner saved by grace. You are a sinner who is waiting the full redemption of your body when you'll be set free from sin And so right now, who you are is someone who's richly, deeply beloved by Jesus Christ, who died on your behalf, rose for your justification, and is coming back to get you. And so this is how we get that grace. This grace that that he promises here is the grace of trusting the gospel more. So when those things come, when that stuff comes, the answer is to remember the gospel in the middle of it. I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by not having thoughts. I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by not having feelings. I'm saved by grace, I'm not saved by not doubting. Remember who you are before God. And that's the the means by which he's gonna begin to give you more grace, is he's gonna remind you again of the truth of the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. And so he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, James goes on, he says, submit yourself therefore to God. Submit to his definition of who you are. You are richly beloved. You are purchased with the blood of the lamb. And you are mine. Submit to God and say, yes, Lord, that's exactly right. That's who I am, even though I don't feel like it right now. Even though I don't believe it at this particular moment, I agree with you. I am submitting to you. You have defined me this way because I trust in Jesus. And then here's the good news. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Once you have understood where you stand before God, who you are in in God's economy, then you can look at the devil and go, bug off. I don't have to listen to you. Half of what you're saying is true, but I have been redeemed. And, And you fight him not by saying, oh, I'm gonna resist really hard, but you fight him with the gospel. Jesus died for me. Jesus paid for my sins. I am set free. You resist the devil, of course he's gonna flee. Why is he gonna flee? Because what happens next in this gospel is Jesus Christ takes the full wrath of God, the full brunt of God's wrath on behalf of his people, and dies. He disarms Satan. He takes from Satan the weapons that he holds against us. He wipes them out. And so if we resist Satan like that, you point to the fact, hey, by the way, you were defeated, and your doom is sure, of course he's going to flee. So this is how you fight this battle with sin, is you remind yourself of what Jesus has done, who you are in light of who Jesus is. And so when those thoughts, those feelings, those doubts, those, the anger, the, the frustration, the loneliness, the bitterness, whatever it is comes up, you remind yourself of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have been bought with a price. That's who I am. Period. And Satan will flee. He's got nothing to hold against you. He's got to leave. He's gone. So that's what our enemy looks like so when he enters into Judas, Judas had none of these things. He comes to Judas and he says, you know, you could get some bucks out of this. And Judas goes, yeah, let's do it, baby. Now, later in another gospel, Luke won't report what happens to Judas in his gospel. He mentions it in, in his, the book of Acts. And what he says is, is Judas took the money, bought a field, and hung himself, and he fell off the tree and burst open in the middle, and his guts spilled out. No repentance, just bitterness and, and frustration at what he had done. He didn't change his mind about anything. He just felt bad because it didn't work out the way he thought it would. In other Gospels, he goes back to the Pharisees and he says, here, take your money back. I don't want it. And the Pharisees look at him, We're not taking that blood money. That's yours. And he throws it into the temple. And the Pharisees buy the, the plot of land for him. So the money that he earned doing this to Jesus bought him his burial plot. So Judas never found repentance in this. He never changed his mind about it. What he found was bitterness of soul, remorse. Oh, my gosh, what did I do? But never changed his heart. He was still a greedy person. So this is, this is our enemy. This is what he does to us. This is how he approaches us. So when, he entered into, when Satan entered into uh, Judas, he entered into his life in this way. Satan is behind human sin but not in a way that relieves us of responsibility for it. We still willingly do it, he's just there to kind of stir it up a little bit. Um, The problem with this is when we talk, especially you talk about like Satan and these demonic forces and and these powers, people get a little wiggy. Like, really? You believe in demons? Oh, come on. You're some sort of holy roller or something? That's a very simplistic, boiled down, materialistic way of looking at things, you say, well, nothing can exist except for what we can see, hear, smell, touch, taste, measure, define, you know, it's just this. There can't be that. Aren't you, aren't you being, you know, primitive by believing in those things? Well, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's, it's being primitive to believe in these things. Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says that when the spirit moves, you can't see him, but you see the results. And so it's kind of the picture of Um, let's imagine you're standing in a field of tall grass and the wind comes from behind you and you you feel it blow past your your, your neck and across your hair and then you watch the grass kind of move out in front of you. You didn't see the wind. You don't know where it came from, where it's going, but you see the results, don't you? Or if you're on a lake fishing and it's dead calm and suddenly a gust comes past you and you see the ripples go out and the water is disturbed. You didn't see the wind, but you feel the effect of it. So when we talk about these, these demonic, angelic presences, these, these supernatural layer that we can't really see, yeah, we can't see it, we can't measure it, we can't define it, it by, or by definition, we can't do those things. That's what supernatural means. But you can't see the results of it. You can see it as it moves through this world. You can watch what happens. And so this is what we're seeing with Judas, is he takes it to a new level of evil in betraying the Son of God. And this is that wind blowing the the grass as you see Judas move in that direction. Not contrary to who he was, but just who he is. So as we're facing this kind of opponent, that's why we have to fight with supernatural forces. We have to fight with the gospel. That's the only way we're going to do it. So this brings up then the next question. Okay, why would Satan do this? Why would Satan, if he knows that Jesus' death will be his undoing, why would he instigate Judas' to sell Jesus to lead to his death. Why didn't he enter into the the officials to make them want to kill him? Why is he doing what he's doing at this point? And I want to be careful here and tell you we don't have a bunch of scripture on this. So I'm going to infer some stuff. Um, So if you don't want to go with me on this, that's fine. You can go, okay, Pastor Tim, that's sweet. You you Pat me on the arm and tell me I'll be all right. Um, But here's what I think is going on, is... Remember the last time we saw Satan? Last time he popped his head out of the foxhole? Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized. The Spirit has driven him out into the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He's weak. He's out in the middle of nowhere, and Satan comes up. And Satan says, Hey, got a plan for you. I know you're hungry. It's been 40 days. Come on. You've got to be starving. Turn that rock into a loaf of bread, it'll be fine. We'll take a shortcut here, Jesus. We won't go the path of suffering. We won't go the path of pain. We'll take a shortcut. Just, you, you, if you're the son of God, you can do this. Just wave your hands and it'll become bread. And when Jesus doesn't bite on that, he says, okay, how about this? Takes him to the top of the temple. He says, look out, look and see. Or no, he takes him up on a high mountain. He says, look and see all the, all the nations. They're all mine. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. We, man, we can, we can short-circuit this thing and do it right now. You don't have to go the way of pain and suffering. Here's the easy way, Jesus. Here's the simple thing. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. They're all mine. I'll give them to you. That, that's all you got to do. Jesus, you don't have to suffer to get what you want. I have got a better deal for you. And when Jesus resists that one, then Satan takes him up on top of the temple and he says, Okay, look, guy, if you really are the son of God, because you might not be, But here's a way we can tell really quick, just jump off. The the angels will scoop you up and you won't hit the ground, it'll be great, Just, just do this. Because maybe you're not who you think you are. So Satan's goal with Jesus so far has been let's bypass the pain, the cross, the humiliation, the shame, the spitting, the scourging, let's skip that so you don't have to go there. So Satan knew that what the result of that would be was Satan's destruction. And so he tried to short-circuit it. So Jesus has repeatedly throughout this gospel shown he's not going to go that way. He has repeated, he, he faced Satan down in the desert, and he repeatedly said, I am going to the cross. I will go to Jerusalem, be rejected, turned over to Gentiles, shamefully treated, executed and raised on the third day. And so Satan is look at this going, I can't change his mind. I've tried. I, I've given my best shot, my, my deepest wiles, and he didn't buy it. So... If he won't change his path, maybe I can make it worse for him. Maybe what I'll do is just make it as miserable for him as possible. So he goes to Judas and he says, here's one who has been your best friend. Jesus, I'm going to turn him so that he betrays you. If you're going to do this, if you're so hard set to do this, I'm going to make it as rough on you as possible. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to take some of them with me. So I think that's why Satan is doing this, as he gets to this point, And he doesn't need to enter into the chief priests and the scribes and the officials. Their heart's already set. They have hated Jesus from the day they met him. They have always wanted to, to oppose him. So he doesn't need to do anything there. I, I don't have to worry about them. They're already on track. Judas just needs a little nudge in the right direction. And I can make Jesus suffer. I can make his road to the cross as miserable as possible. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter, Jesus is gonna look at Judas and say, I mean, Jesus is gonna look at Peter and say, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan is coming after you, Peter, but I've prayed for you. So Satan's goal here is not his own destruction. His goal here is to head toward Jesus and make his road to the cross as miserable for him as possible. If he won't be deterred, I'm going to to amp it up, and maybe along the way it'll be too much for him. So this is why Satan would even bother doing this. This is why he would even look at getting involved in Jesus this way as he's trying to make it as horrible for him as possible. And so remember when he met him in the desert, the end of that was when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, him until an opportune time. This is the opportune time this is the opportune place, is Judas. So what we need to do with this, what the the discipleship principle in all this is, is we have to be aware of what our enemy is up to. If you're not aware of what the enemy is doing, there's a real danger that you'll fall for it. And so um, when Paul in, in Ephesians is talking about putting on the full armor of God, what he says at the end of that is, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The word behind that is uh, methodia, methods. Satan has methods. Satan has ways of doing things, and you need to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against these methods, against these schemes. Because you have an enemy who is opposed to you. And here's the scary thing about Satan as our enemy he didn't care a rip about you, he doesn't care at all about you. His goal is not you. His goal is Jesus. You're a pawn. So imagine if North Korea decided they wanted to invade North America, that they wanted to come in and take over America. Would they launch all their nukes and just wipe out America? No, because they wanna come and take this over. So what they might do then is go, well, we wanna take out America, but they're a little strong, so what we'll do is we'll take out their allies. So we'll nuke England and Germany and France, and Greece, and Italy, we'll take them out, because we don't care about them. We want America. That's who you are, folks. For Satan's plans, Satan's schemes, Satan's methods, you are merely what stands between him and his goal. That's a terrifying enemy to face, one who doesn't care about you. If he wants you, he won't kill you. If he doesn't care about you, he'll do anything he wants to you, as long as he gets to his goal. So we need to be aware of his schemes, of his methods, of his ways. And so that's, that's why Paul tells us, put on the full armor of God. You have an enemy. He doesn't care about you. He's gonna take you out. Be aware of his methods, and then you have the tools to fight. That's why James, I think, is so important, is he tells us, he promises us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, resist the devil and he will flee from you. you can't, it can be done. It may not feel like it at the time, But it can be done. So this is the enemy that we face. These are the tools of the warfare. And just like in Red Badge of Courage or Dunkirk, the war is unrelenting and the threat is continually there. That's the warning we have. And so be aware of the schemes of your enemy. He's your enemy because he's God's enemy. He is not the equal and opposite of God. He's not as powerful as God. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said if, you, if the Satan was the equal and opposite of God, he couldn't exist. Because God is initiative, creativity, motion. He, he's doing things. The opposite of that would be non-existence, non-creativity, non-involvement, non-engagement. That's not, the opposite of God isn't Satan, it's nothing. Satan's the opposite of the archangel Michael. That's who he is. So understand your enemy. Understand his schemes and understand how you can fight him because he's coming. And what we're going to see in the Holy Week and the opposition to Jesus is demonic influence. It is Satan oppressing what God wants to do. But the resurrection happens. I looked. I peeked at the end of the book. The resurrection happens. Jesus wins. He defeats Satan. So that's how we can resist him And walk with God. Let's pray. Our beautiful King, thank you for suffering uh, shame and scorn, being marred beyond all recognition, bearing the total weight of the burden of our sin on your holy shoulders, taking that into the grave and leaving it in the ground where it can't bother us anymore. Lord, thank you for nailing to the cross all the laws and rules that stood against us our bill of uh, debt to to God for our unholiness, thank you for disarming our great and mighty foe, taking the tools that He has against us away from us away from him, so they can 't be wielded against us. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would when when we smell that sulphur when we hear the the uh, the the click of those uh, satanic heels coming around lord that we would remember the gospel remember who we are in light of who jesus is and resist the devil so that he would flee lord would you give us that power to stand we don't have to attack we don't have to go out and charge ephesians 6 tells us once we've done everything we can stand lord give us that power Give us the the faith to believe that we can stand against all the wiles of the devil. And, Lord, I want to pray that for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Uh, Lord, there are folks who are facing much worse things than we are, much harsher opposition. Lord, there are people who are being beheaded because they will not deny who Jesus Christ is. Lord, would you give them strength in that moment to help them to be humble so that they might receive the grace they need in that moment. And Lord, would you avenge their blood? Lord, give us strength to stand as well. We pray in Christ's name, amen.